everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne. Welcome to the ASCA Podcast. What's up, everybody? Joseph Coyne here. Thank you again for coming on to this ASCA Podcast. As always, if you're a new listener, please go on and rate us five stars on iTunes or SoundCloud, whatever you're listening to it. Um, today it's going to be a bit different. I'm just going to be speaking to you by myself. It's really weird for me actually speaking without interviewing anybody and just talking by myself. But I'm just going to be talking to you by myself about a recent US study tour I went on. Um, to start this off though, I'm going to mention a few different ways coaches as part of the ASCA can get access to scholarships or funds as part of these two, two main ways. One is the ASCA Coach Scholarship and the other one is the Board Initiative Fund. And this supports, it's the way of the ASCA supporting further professional development for coaches and helping them go out and maybe get some new equipment and try some new equipment just so long as they can bring that stuff back to help the, the wider community and, and help inform the wider community. So I'm going to talk about those things, the, the Coach Scholarship Fund, also the Board Initiative Fund. I'm also going to talk about the US uh, study tour I went to and, and some of the different places I went to, uh, which is really, really cool. And basically I went there, I took a look, stole as many good ideas as I could within one day or the one and a half days that I was there, um, talked to a lot of people and, and met a lot of people and I had a great time and I basically I brought back all those good ideas and now this is my way of sharing it with you. So I really hope you enjoy it and without further ado, I think we're going to get started. So today I want to talk to you about a number of different options and a number of different uh, scholarship and funding uh, initiatives the ASCA has. So the first one is called the ASCA Coach Scholarship Fund. Now this is an initiative from the board and also the coaching course presenters, the people that present the level one and level two, and they they donate a percentage of the presenter fees that they, they earn by doing the presentation um, or the workshops, and these go to these scholarship foundations now that the ASCA has. Now, the objective of the Scholarship Foundation is to increase the capabilities of strength and conditioning coaches working within Australia and also to establish a self-sustaining scheme to cultivate and advance strength and conditioning coaches. So what happens is basically the Coach Scholarship Fund supports uh, developing coaches um, from a wide range of backgrounds and qualifications and experience. And the objective of the applying coach when you apply for this fund, it should be to help you uh, help you develop your education experience and also grow the profession. Um, so, look, people have used this to go to a level two strength and conditioning course. They've used it to go to the International Conference on Applied Strength and Conditioning. They've also used it to work with an ASCA mentor. You don't necessarily need to do exactly those things if you didn't want to apply for this fund, but those are some examples that people have used. You can't use it to purchase equipment, though, nor can you use it to, if you're a PhD student or something like that, to, to fund your research. But, um, look, it's it's all aligned with the ACA's philosophy of we've got to build some uh, build some coaches from the ground up and further education, networking, and mentoring is, is really, really important. For this 
for this uh, Coach Scholarship Fund, you need to be a current member of the ASCA. So if you're not, you, you need to be. And you also need to be part of the Coach Accreditation Scheme, um, which is, which look, I, I'd recommend them even if you had no intention of, of, of applying for this. There has to be some type of experience, but uh, like you have to have some type of experience in the strength conditioning world or round. And uh, you must demonstrate a, a commitment to the ASA and its coaching programs is, is the other sort of criteria. And what happens, you, you complete a little form, you send it off, um, and then there's a selection panel. These are made up from board members, and they decide, based on your eligibility, based on the quality of the, uh, quality of the proposal uh, for the fund, whether or not, uh, whether or not you, you're successful. So that's the first one. Um, highly recommend it if you do want to get along to the ASCA Level 2 course, even a Level 3 course. Um, you want to come along to the conference and there's scope there for you. Look, uh, the worst thing that can happen is, is they'll say no. Um, the best thing that will happen is, is something uh, you, you'll get some funding there. So, look, it's a, it's a great initiative from, from the ASCA there. Now, the second uh, thing I'm going to talk to you about is the Board Initiative Foundation. And basically what happened, um, the ASA in 2007 launched the Professional Coaches Association. It was created to provide a membership and kind of like an accreditation system for ASCA coaches. And it identifies people working within like your normal sporting structures that possess qualifications, experience, etc. cetera. Um, and what the ASCA really wanted to do with this is, is support these members, these these professional coaches accreditation members um, and, and as part of the professional coaching scheme um, to further promote their education and experience. So it's, it's similar to that coaches, uh, coaches, uh, coach scholarship fund. Um, but this one might be a little bit different. It may be a bit more for coaches that uh, have a bit more experience and say going to the conference or or doing a level two course, they might have already done that. So um, this initiative fund, the board initiative fund, uh, basically it ensures that that people as part of this professional coaching scheme, they get to continue to develop their skill set, even if they're working at the highest level of the industry. And it kind of recognises the, these people that, hey, maybe that uh, they want to go and do something a little bit different. So, so people have used this to go to some conferences, again, just like their coach scholarship fund. Um, they've used it to bring in a guest speaker to the organisation. So say, for instance, you've got somebody really interesting and, you're, and you think they'll benefit your organisation and you say, okay, let's go out and, and bring them in. Um, and other, other things, people have gone on study tours, and I'll talk about my study tour in, in a little bit that I went to the United States for. Um, so you get to go out and visit other high-level coaches and, and it obviously sparks some sparks some. Uh, ideas when you see them do their work and you see what they're doing and you go yeah right that can really benefit my practice you can also use this unlike the coach scholarship fund to purchase some specialist equipment um, some software or something technical or, or, or make something some technical innovation um, so that's that's one sort of section that like professional development you can also use it though to develop an intern program so if you want to bring people in and you need a bit of help or monetary assistance to do that it can be used, the board initiative fund can be used for those purchases or for, for those purposes. Um, similar to the coach scholarship fund, the applicants, you, you need to be a member of the professional coach association uh, and it's got to be at a professional level or above. So there's obviously different types of levels. There's, uh, there's your intern, your elite, your professional, your master, and it's got to be at a professional level or above. 
you've got to be in strength conditioning as a as a career. Um, you can't be awarded more than one grant in, in, in any given year, and it's got to promote some excellence in strength conditioning. And then it's also got to add some value to the ASCA and its members. So normally people might write a report on what they've done. They might give a presentation on what they've done, uh, what they've learned, things that they went and did or what people said. And and so what I'm going to talk to you about today is I was a really proud recipient of the Board Initiative Fund in 2017. I, uh, I got lucky enough to be uh, awarded it um, along, with, along with another recipient. Uh, there was two last year. And look, what I went and did, I went and did a study tour of the United States. So I went to three places. I went to what I considered a market lead in strength conditioning in the United States, which was Exos, and that was in uh, Carlsbad, San Diego, where I went to. Uh, I also went to a multidisciplinary facility that dealt with combat athletes, and this was the UFC Performance Institute. The last place I went to was a professional uh, field and court franchise, and it was a basketball franchise in the US. And... Uh, this, this was the Milwaukee Bucks, and I got to hang out there and then see some. I got to hang out at all these places and see some really, really neat stuff. So, basically, what I'm going to do today is we're going to talk about we've talked about all these options that you have for funding within the ACA, and now we're going to talk about my experience on this US study tour and and uh, some of the ideas and some of the the cool stuff I saw over there uh, that that I think uh, will really benefit ACA members and benefit anybody listening to this podcast. So let's start with the first stop of my tour, my US study tour, and that was at Exos San Diego or Exos Carlsbad. Um, little disclaimer, I have worked for Exos in the past. I worked for Exos for about 18 months in China. As part of that, before going there to China, I spent about two weeks in their Phoenix facility, which is their, their original athletes' performance Exos facility, uh, the mothership, so to speak, and I kind of got to know the system there, and then obviously I worked in the system when I was in China. So I'm pretty familiar with the Exos system, although I've never worked in the US at one of their facilities. But I really wanted to see what it was like day in, day out um, for at like a, a satellite facility, not not the not the Phoenix one, and, and what how it compared to the Phoenix one. And I thought this would be really beneficial for strength and conditioning, Australian strength and conditioning members, because. A lot of our work uh, and a lot of the members' work might not be in the non-user pay system anymore. For instance, with the professional sporting team or something like that, uh, there's a lot of private strength and conditioning popping up, and Exos have done this wonderfully well in the, in the US space, and, and I thought I could share some of the things that I, I've seen there and, and what I kind of learned there. Anyway, um, I guess I should start. I When I went to this facility... Um, I actually got picked up by a former Exos employee, former athletes performance employee, and he, he had been around, this guy, his name's Joshua Aikoff, uh, he has been around in that sort of athletes performance, Exos, um, from from word go, like he was with Mark Versagan out in Florida, he came out to Phoenix when Mark Versagan first started uh, in Phoenix, and so he's, he's, he's been around, um, he wasn't actually currently working at Exos at the, at the moment in the, in the Carlsbad facility, but I'd known him from my time in China. And uh, he was he was around in LA and we, when I was there in Southern LA when I was there and uh, he thought he would come out and hang out with me while I was while I was there at that Exos facility because um, I touched base from when I got to the got to the US 
And if it's one thing I can recommend is whenever you go places, it's really good to have another person there um, just so you can bounce ideas off one another. And also because the people that you're going to see, they've got to do a day job. So if they if there's another person there, um, look, sometimes they they might feel like there's not so much pressure to keep the person, the guest entertained or talk to the guest when they've got to go and do something. But anyway, I first heard of Joss in China. He had been out there before the 2012 Olympics, mainly working the diving thing. And when I got to China, um, I had to do a little bit of work with divers, and they always keep going on about this uh, Joshua uh, that that uh, got them into gold medal shape before the 2012 Olympics. So that's how I heard of him. He came back to China when I was still working for athletics and did some work with the Track and Field Federation, who I eventually ended up working for as well. Um, so I got to know him there. He worked with a long jump sprint. He worked with some throwing athletes as well um, before the 2015 World Championships. And look, wonderful coach. Uh, he's been around the US system. He's also worked for Velocity Sports Performance. So he's, he's, he's hung out with people like Lauren Landau, Rick Larson, all those type of people. And, got a, and Marcus Sagan, obviously. So he's got a great amount of experience in Look, he came and picked me up, and we drove down together from, I was staying in Laguna Beach, and we drove down together to Carlsbad to check out this uh, this Exos Carlsbad, Exos San Diego. So firstly, when you arrive there, you actually arrive, it's Exos, but they, they're quite smart in that they sublease part of the skills, SKLZ uh, facility, and skills is the equipment manufacturer, you can get mini hurdles and speed ladders and and sleds and, and mini bands, things like that from Skills. And so it's a wonderful partnership Exos and Skills have. But one thing from a from a business point of view, it's really smart if if you can to the first thing I picked up is you, is you go into a place that's already existing where you form a partnership where you can sublease the space um, from somebody else and it benefits both parties. But we went in there into this Exos, uh, Exos Carlsbad facility. You walk in there, you go into the Exos part of things, and um, there's a few offices. You go to the weight room. It's it's fully um, decked out, a lot of space. There's Kaiser equipment. Um, then you you walk through there out on some artificial turf, and there's also a track out there. Uh, and so, look, it's not quite as big as the Phoenix facility, but it, it's still a really nice, really nice facility. And being in that southern L.A., they get a whole heap of NBA, uh, especially for the NFL draft. They'll have one of the big, biggest NFL draft uh, attendances out of any one of the Exos facilities. And the guy I um, approached, first of all, to go, go in there was a guy called Brent Calloway. He was my manager at Exos, and he used to work at this facility. He just recently moved, and he put me in touch with a guy called Roy Holmes. Now, Roy... Um, it's similar to Josh, he'd been been involved with Exos for a long time. He he deals with heaps of NFL veterans, free agents, draft guys, uh, NBA players. Like I said, tennis. He he, he helps out Coco Vandeweghe if anyone's finished, uh, familiar with women's tennis, and even rugby. Um, San Diego Legion come in there and, and train out of there, and he manages their their program. So really good guy. Um, Heaps of experience working with athletes in that private private strength conditioning space. And look there, if, if you want to look at a record and, um, for instance, a record of work for for something like what Roy's produced, is you only have to look at, say, some of the NFL draft um, 
performances, um, the combine performances, I should say, and some of the Exos athletes that come in there, and uh, especially out of that that Los An- San Diego uh, facility, and yeah, it's it's really, uh, really, really impressive. So the first thing when I arrived there. We had a quick chat, we had a talk, and I asked him sort of like, why do you think, from your point of view, why do you think Exos has been so successful? And he suggested that it was obviously in every spot you go to, every place you work, there are silos and where there's people doing their thing, they stay in their lane, um, and they, they try not to step on other people's toes, so to speak. But one thing that Exos has done really well is that that type of silo approach where you might go and see a physiotherapist or physical therapist and then you go see a strength conditioning coach and you see a nutritionist and these are all separate people obviously doing different things. But with Exos, he believes the the biggest thing that they've done well is they've kind of morphed um, those professions and got them really comfortable working with one another. And so the athlete gets a really well-rounded constant message every time they come in there it's not a little bit different from the physical therapist compared to the snc coach compared to the nutritionist everyone's on the same page there's similar nomenclature similar wordings to what they're saying and athletes are getting the same message and there's not a real well you do that i do this don't come over here um it's really collaborative and definitely that's that's uh I think it's one of the strengths of Exos for sure. They, they've done that really, really well. I also, I also kind of think that they've they've been thinking in a, what I call a wattage model, and the best way of, instead of a kg model, a kilogram model, they've been thinking a wattage model. The best way of explaining this is Dan Baker, probably circa mid nineteen nineties, started using velocity based uh, training and started applying this wattage-based model. Hey, it's not important how much you lift. It's more important. Well, it is important to some degree, but it's really important how fast you lift and how much power you produce uh, while lifting. So you think of things as in watts rather than kgs. For instance, who can move 100 kgs fastest? Who can move 50 kgs fastest? And what uh, one of the partnerships Exos has is with Kaiser and Kaiser and Pneumatic equipment where basically it's air resistance rather than mass resistance and one of the things they have on their little dashboards when you use a kaiser machine they've got the sort of power meter so every rep you do there's a power recording given out to the athlete and it's one of the real beauties with kaiser is you get this instantaneous feedback which we know is really important from from research on velocity based training you get this instantaneous feedback and athletes respond to that and athletes one athlete will do a rep or do a set, and then the next athlete, the first athlete did 1,500 watts as their PB. The next athlete's going to want to do 1,500. The athlete after that's going to want to beat the second athlete. The athlete after that's going to want to beat the third athlete. So they not only have been thinking this wattage-based model, but they've also been given this instantaneous feedback that we know is so important to athletes for years now with, with using the Kaiser system. Um, so... That thinking in the how much power can you produce rather than how much weight can you lift is a really, really important distinction. And I think Exos has been doing that really well for a long time now. Um, and while we're on the topics of pneumatics, they've also been using these pneumatics for a long time uh, with, with their partnership. And pneumatics 
do appear to be better than traditional mass-based resistance training at improving what we call high-velocity power. So high-velocity power is where you, um, where you, basically sport is normally done with just your body weight. And high-velocity, to produce power, it's a combination normally of mass and acceleration and velocity, e.g. force or power equals force times velocity. Force is made up of mass and acceleration. So to increase uh, to increase force or increase power, you can either increase force by increasing mass, you can either increase force by increasing acceleration, or you can increase um, velocity to increase power. Now, if you don't have much mass, you've got to move something quicker or accelerate it faster to produce this high-velocity power. Um, and low-velocity power might be where you use a lot of weight um, to produce the power. But in sport, you don't really have a lot of weight besides your body weight. Uh, so obviously in some of the combat sports, you've got to overcome somebody else's mass. And in weightlifting um, or powerlifting, then there's a case for low-velocity power being very important. But most sports rely on athletes uh, just using their own body mass. E.g., you can't, you can't run down a 100-meter track with a barbell on your back just to produce more power on a race because it's not about uh, how much power you can produce in the race. It's, it's your time. So this high-velocity power is really important, and the pneumatics help with that a little bit more than what traditional mass would do. The other thing pneumatics do is they have a they probably have a little bit less shear and a little bit less impulse forces when you use them. So it's a little bit safer for people to use them. And there's, there's, I know from, in my experience, I feel like I don't get beaten up anywhere near as much from using uh, the next day after doing strength training from using pneumatic-based equipment versus versus like a barbell. If I do a lot of work with pneumatics versus a lot of work with a barbell, um, the difference is, is quite distinct. And so that means... That if you're an athlete and you've got technical training, you can keep technical training up to a high intensity versus if you're really sore and banged up from traditional mass-based uh, lifting, maybe you can't keep technical training up or maybe you can't perform technical training at the same same intensity. So that's uh, another consideration with pneumatics. And so basically, Exos, they've, they've removed the silos really well. They've been thinking in a wattage-based model for, for a long time. They've been using pneumatics for a long time. And I think those are three really big uh, things that they've done really well that have, that have influenced their success with their athletes. Another thing that I think is quite important to note with Exos is that they have a motto, do things, do simple things savagely well. Um, and this really relates, like their structure, they've got a, a pillar prep and movement prep then you've got your sort of pilometrics, your medicine ball, or your movement skills before pilometrics, your medicine ball, your your um, your strength, your power, your ESD, your recovery. So I don't consider that they do any one of those things better than, like really better than anybody else out there, but what they do, they make the complete package really, really good. So overall, the package is great. Um and there's obviously a heavy track and field undercurrent to everything they do, but that that making sure your the the type of philosophy is you're only as strong as your weakest link, and they've identified the links that are part of the sort of physical training um, uh, preparation process, and they've really made sure that all those links are adequately good enough that. 
uh, it's going to benefit their athletes. And so that, that's another thing to think of that I, while I was there is that they they don't need to do things exceptionally well or they, they would prefer not to do things exceptionally well in one area if it's the detriment of another area. You've got to make sure there's a well-rounded approach and if there are things in your athlete provision um, that that need to be brought up uh, to par, then focus there and bring up your strengths in, in that department. I guess it's just like when you assess an athlete if, and if there's a glaring weakness, you've got to take care of that weakness before progressing on. And Excels have done that with their own training system and the training template they use. Um, and, of course, they're also very smart with the business side of things. And if you're a private strength conditioning provider, you want to think of this as well. They have uh, partnerships with a number of players associations. For instance, the, when I came in there, I watched an NFL free agent uh, do, do a training session. And I'll talk about that in a second. But basically, they've got these, they've got these partnerships with these player associations. Um, and, for example, with the, with the NFL, they have a deal where free agents, that unsigned free agents, can use Exos facilities free of charge, and the Players Association, Association pays for them to train there. And while they're unsigned, so they don't have a team, um, these might be guys that might have been on the team year before. They've been they've been cut. They're still hoping to get picked up at some stage during the season. They can come along to an Exos facility and get trained. Um, and then also veterans, they have a they have a deal with the NFL veterans um, or the players association, their veterans department, where the veterans can come in, guys that have been in the league a certain amount of time, uh, they can come in and and get treated for free, get uh, therapy for free, get their get training for free, um, get nutrition for free. So it's it's about providing a bit of extra for the for the players. And Exos have been really smart and saying, hey. Where are the gaps in what we're doing? Um, obviously, there's already strength conditioning coaches at every every other every one of the clubs uh, with the franchises. But how can we benefit uh, the athletes? We can benefit them in the gap between college and, and the pros with the draft. We can benefit them if they're unsigned, but they still need to be training. And we can benefit them after they've been training or after they finish their career, but making sure they're healthy long term. Um, they're going to be beaten up. They uh, they might need some psychological help, you know what I mean, or or some guidance there. And how can we do that uh, to help that transition from being a player to being a, vet, a veteran and being successful in the outside community? Uh, and making sure you keep your health on track and and stay healthy and and deal with any of those injuries you've picked up during your playing career. So those are things I think they've done really well. Um, the, the the bits and pieces I picked up from Exos weren't uh, that much in terms of what I saw in there. But, for instance, one thing I know that when people go to the Exos Phase 1s and Phase 2s, they come away with these big pillar preps, big movement preps, and they'll start putting athletes through them. And, and look, it might take an athlete like sort of 30 minutes, 40 minutes to actually get through a pillar prep and movement prep before a session. Uh, as an example, with the CNFL free agent that I was there on the day, um, it might have taken him 10 minutes to do pillar prep and about five minutes to do his movement prep. Uh, maybe even less, maybe maybe only eight minutes, five to eight minutes to do his pillar prep. The movement prep was literally one set of every exercise in their movement prep template, which is sort of general warm-up, your, your mini band, hip activation, your dynamic mobility, your um, movement skills, and the neural activation. So literally, he went through some... Uh, with the mini band, 
some um, base position, external rotation, where you're standing in an athletic position, moving the leg in and out um, to activate the glutes. Then he went straight into the world's greatest stretch. Then he went straight into a little skipping variation. And actually, he got, he got given two skipping variations, um, like a, a basic acceleration skip um, and then a lateral lateral skip. And then he went into some uh, a little fast feet with a little thing. And it was, it was bang, 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 done and dusted within sort of five to eight minutes, that, that movement prep part of things. So uh, definitely if you've been to those Exos Phase 1s and Phase 2s, you can adapt that based on your circumstance. Maybe the, the people you need to work with need a lot longer, uh, um, a lot shorter, but a lot of people have, have had the feedback that it just takes so long to warm a person up following that type of template. It can be done really quickly, and uh, it was one of the things I saw when I was there. The other thing I saw when I was there was a pretty cool uh, one-arm bench press variation where um, the the free agent was on the edge of a edge of a bench, um, so it was half on half off the bench. One leg was up on the bench, um, holding onto the bench with the non-pressing arm, and the pressing arm was half off the bench, and that's like a little pressing core stability variation that uh, that Exos likes to use. Um, what else did I see? I saw some good curve running, so Woodway Curve, they use that a lot. They use it a lot in the draft preparation as well. So for their high-velocity days, um, getting the guys up on the on the Woodway Curve, which if you're not familiar with Woodway Curve, it's basically a, a, a curved treadmill that's self-powered. Um, if, if you've seen them, there's, there's a lot of other uh, products out there on the market now. But self-powered treadmill, it's curved. Pretty good for front side mechanics in terms of getting the athlete to pull the leg through as fast as possible without spending too much time after they've hit the ground before coming back up. Um, it can cause so there's a bit of an argument out there that it can cause people to strike too far out in front of them when, as they're coming down, but it, it's a really nice way to get some high velocity work into um, some athletes on a on a device that is might be a bit more forgiving than on a track or on the grass outside so they did some did some tempo intervals to finish the session off with there they're looking at running form looking at mechanics the whole time and uh, they might have done 15 seconds on 45 seconds off and they would have done six minutes of that um but yeah so that, that this free agent used it i know they use it in the nfl draft um camp so in the morning they might do acceleration they might come back in and uh in the afternoon, and then hit a bit of bit of tempo running, form running on the on the uh, woodway curve, just to give them a high velocity stimulus before they get into or after they've gone into some weights on that same uh, same day as acceleration in the morning. But there, there was Exos, and there was my thoughts on Exos. I thought it was uh, really good, and, and thanks to Brent Calloway and Roy Holmes for letting me come in there, and thanks for uh, Joshy Acock for um, for bringing me in. Then I forgot to mention actually while we we're in there, it was it was really neat to see Josh. Uh, back there talking to Roy and and um, give me a little bit of like an insight into how things operated in the states and and so on. So that was really interesting. So the next place I went to was the Ultimate Fighting Championships Performance Institute. This was in Las Vegas, and look, it was pretty cool. It was a new facility. Um, there, the guy that was the vice president there, his name's Dr. Duncan French. I've known uh, Duncan for 
for a while now, I was, I was lucky enough to be a, a, a presenter exchange for the ASCA when the UK Strength and Conditioning Association had their conference on in 2013, so I got sent over there to be a, a speaker. Um, it was really cool. Duncan, when I got there, Duncan looked after me. He was the, maybe the president at the time of the UK ASCA. I, I can't recall, but he was he was uh, right up there. Um, and, yeah, he looked after me when I got there, got to know him there, and from there we've developed a relationship. We're pretty good friends now. But... He's like the one of the bosses there. He's a vice president. The the other vice president there for this performance institute is Forrest Griffin, who's is quite a famous uh, uh, mixed martial artist fighter. And they've also got a business guy that's a that's a vice president guy. But it's this brand spanking new facility. It's a, it's a beautiful facility. Um, and speaking of silos with with Exos, how they've kind of tried to really eliminate the silos. UFC has has. Their performance suit has some divisions. Um, they've also tried to eliminate the silos within those divisions. There's physical therapy, there's nutrition, um, there's strength and conditioning. There's also sports science, and they've they you can as soon as you walk in there, it's really open and really collaborative, and you can tell that they've there's that same philosophy there. But it's not just within their uh, performance suit. Performance suit is actually part of the the bigger. UFC building and the UFC building contains obviously they have a production department they've got an administration department and all these these parts or components of the building are basically built into like a little horseshoe so everyone can kind of see what everyone else is doing um, if they wanted to and uh, I, I think the idea there is to kind of remove the silos between the production the administration the performance um, to, to get everyone collaborating and and, uh, and and working together on the shared vision, shared goal a little bit better. So the architecture of it is, is designed, apparently, um, or what I was told, to kind of facilitate that uh, that collaboration and, and to make sure everything's nice and open and, and uh, people aren't away working in their corner and it's not a, hey, stay in your lane, mate, type, type um, workplace. So a little bit about the origins of this performance institute. Basically, the UFC has some problems with fighters either getting injured before fights or not making weight, and it, it renders the uh, the bout uh, ineligible for the bout or whatever title they're fighting for. Um, and this this impacts the UFC's bottom line. It it it, uh, it impacts the amount of pay per views they get, and they need to do something to to fix it. And they come up with this. Performance Institute that, like I mentioned, uh, Duncan is, is one of the heads of, and so I went in there, and basically it became pretty clear. And, and what they what they told me was that there's three main problems for for fighters. One, you've got to go through um, your training and, and your sparring and your, your your preparation and not get injured. That's that's the first one. The second concern is you've got to make weight, and then the third concern is you've got to actually perform in the fight. So that's their kind of needs analysis, or not needs analysis, but that's what they're working towards at that uh, at the performance institute on how to how to facilitate that process for the fighters that are contracted the UFC, and how to make it as uh, give them sort of best practice guidelines and 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 training and, and nutrition and uh, and sports science to make sure that happens um, without anybody getting hurt or or um, doing really dangerous weight cuts or, or that sort of thing. And obviously, in the fighting game, 
the uh, the bigger you can be in a certain weight class, it's to an advantage. So there are some pretty dramatic weight cuts that go on. Um, and one of the challenges, I guess, is, is figuring out how do we manage that and what's acceptable, what's not acceptable, and, and going from there. In terms of the layout of the of the place, I've already spoken about that type of horseshoe type type shape, but in the actual performance shoot, the downstairs there's like a gym, there's a recovery room, um, upstairs there's a fighting cage and some mats and, and some bags and things like that. And there's also a lecture room where they might hold press conferences or maybe athlete education. And then there's also some, also some offices upstairs and like a, uh, a lounge where people can relax and, and, and hang out. Um, but anyway, in the, in the gym, uh, they would, they have obviously a typical strength conditioning type, type gym. Um, they use elite form in there, so that's their form of measuring velocity with barbells. You don't need to put a – it's not like a gym wear that you need to attach or a push band that you need to put on your arm. The, the elite form picks up the speed of the bar um, by by how fast it moves with, with some cameras on the racks, so they use elite form in there. Um, they might have had four racks from memory. There's a little sports science room uh, where they can do some VO2 max testing on a treadmill. Uh, the, the physical therapy room is, is right right on the gym. There's also a track that runs inside, outside, uh, out onto, um, in front of that horseshoe design that I talked about. And there's also some artificial turf that you walk through a roller door. Uh, again, in, in the inside of that horseshoe where if you're an admin, you could see the athletes training um, or in, in production, you could see the, the athletes training out there on that bit of turf. The the recovery room was pretty cool. I, I went and spent a couple of hours in there uh, hanging out in, in, in the sauna, but they got like a far infrared sauna. There might be a steam room from memory. There's some hot cold pools that I uh, subjected myself to. Um, they also have all the all the toys like your game readies, your normal techs, that type of thing. And, and then with with the sports science, one thing that I found really interesting is they're doing a lot of work at looking with bilateral impedance and especially for dehydration, and I mentioned, the, mentioned those weight cuts, uh, using the bilateral impedance to pick up things like the fluid, uh, extracellular fluid, that type of thing. And my sort of previous opinion of bilateral impedance was that, look, it's, it's fine if you want to use it, um, but you have to take certain like measures to make sure you measure it first thing in the morning, uh, no water beforehand, that type of thing, if you want to be able to assess meaningful change between measures um, and here I'm talking about one of the, like an in-body scan um, but when they're talking hey we want to monitor sort of fluid levels like this or it might be an easy way to monitor fluid levels and I don't think they're 100% sold on what they're doing yet it was just a, an avenue they were going down to investigate uh, this might be a way of doing it without necessarily doing your own specific gravity or, or doing other dehydration um, dehydration measures so yeah, that, that was really interesting. Like I said, the recovery, the gym, sports science, all downstairs, upstairs. Uh, there were some mats, so a fighting cage. I think they had some Vicon, which is like a motion analysis, motion capture system set up um, in the cage. And there's some bags there. Athletes can – it's really easy to go up and downstairs, nice and fast. It's really cool. They've done a really good job, actually, the UFC of, of – promoting its culture and the people that have been involved. And as you walk up the stairs, there's all these pictures of past champions and, uh, and uh, illustrious illustrious fighters. 
So you can't help but be inspired walking up the stairs to the mats and to the caged area. Uh, in that caged area, they also had Vertimax Raptors. Uh, and if you're, if you're familiar with Vertimax, it's normally been on a platform. They've recently come out, or it might not be that recent. It might be quite a while now. They've had these Vertimax Raptor devices, which are like bands that you can attach and add a little bit of resistance to, um, and different types of resistance in terms of load to movements you're doing. Um, really cool to combine with technical training. But they had these Vertimax Raptors up there um, in that area, and then also upstairs, there was a conference room where they might do press press releases. They uh, might do athlete education, I guess. Some offices and a lounge, lounge from memory. So when I was there, I got to watch Director of Strength and Conditioning. There, his name is Bo Sandoval, and if you're if you're not familiar with him, follow him on Twitter, on Instagram, find him out there. Um, really good guy, and I got to watch him actually train Francis Nanu, who's uh, the predator. Um, uh, this guy is straight out of Cameroon, if you're not familiar with the UFC, and uh, he's like 193 centimetres, 120 kgs uh, of pure granite. Um, very, very uh, like well put together individual. And uh, he, I think he actually might even have the biggest punch recorded on in history in terms of like how powerful his punch is. So, He's um he's a he's a, a well put together human and moves really well for a guy that size. Anyway, so Bo was training training him, and this was before he lost in his in his title challenge to uh, um to uh, the Eastern European guy. I forget his name um, in the UFC, the heavyweight uh, heavyweight division. Uh, anyway, so watch them train. Um, one of the things they do. And I also watched the, another another girl train. So she went in, uh, and I'm, I'll just backtrack a little bit. They go in, they'll get some physical therapy first, um, maybe whatever they need to get going for the session, and then go and do the session. Then they might come back to physical therapy just to fix things up and and uh, and make sure everything's okay, or, or do some do some treatment afterwards. But anyway, I, what they do, and I watched Francis do this as well, is um, they go in there. They have this thing, they develop a thing called a grid warm-up, which is basically you've got four cones and it's combinations of different skipping patterns, crawling patterns like a bear walk, a crab walk, that sort of thing, lizard crawls around this uh, around this grid, um, running, running backwards, side skipping, etc. That goes for about six to seven minutes. And it's just designed to replicate a, a round uh, of, of the UFC or might be slightly longer than a regular round, of course, which is a common training practice and mixed martial arts or jiu-jitsu, whatever. And uh, and you've got all these quadrupedal type type warm-ups and it really reinforced how important for those combat sports they need to be they need to be really, really strong quadrupedally, like in terms of that they need to be able to move and their their arms need to be able to bear weight and, and the better you are at this and there's some fantastic wrestling training out there and, and gymnastics training out there where You've got these uh, got these crawls on on all fours and different variations that I think if you're not using them right now, uh, different types of like animal crawls or walks and either conditioning of athletes or teaching them basic, like I'll, I'll take a Calvin Giles term movement literacy, uh, they can be really really beneficial for them, especially increasing that uh, upper body strength relative to their body weight type consideration endurance and, and and even movement and flexibility so 
it, it was uh, it was really cool. It's, it's a nice little. And the other thing that got me thinking of it's a nice little warm up specific to the sport, um, specific to that grappling and wrestling type thing. Uh, rugby league, rugby union would also benefit from the stuff, obviously, and um, with their combative type characteristics that you have in those sports. So they go in, and I watched uh, Francis do this this little grid warm up, and then Bo took him through a strength conditioning program, and there was it was just good. No nonsense uh, strength work. Like there wasn't anything super fancy or or anything that um, you would throw up on an Instagram video or anything like that. And and I think for that's one of the things is that you can also take out of that. And I took out of that is is you do the simple things well. It's just like like what um, that sort of exos philosophy: do simple things savagely well that I mentioned previously. Do them well and things will take care of themselves. And it's a, it's kind of like a principle of efficiency as well. You Why do something elaborate when you can do something simple? And so that, that was kind of a thought that I had coming out of that uh, UFC Performance Institute. Um, Bo was actually at the time being interviewed by uh, Ron McKeefer in play, the, the flooring education uh Company, I, I, I can't I forget the name of the um, little feature they do. Maybe it's called Beyond the Chalk, I think. But anyway, there was a heap of guys out there videotaping uh, Bo and Ron McKeefery in, interviewing him. So I got to meet Ron there and, and chat to him there just a little bit. But uh, if you're interested in that, that stuff there, um, maybe I'm creeping around in the background, but uh, I'm sure on the Play website there's a Beyond the Chalk feature with, with Bo that you can go in there and see some cool footage of the of the UFC facility if you're interested in it. So next on the next one the destinations that I went to were the Milwaukee Bucks. And they're an NBA franchise and uh, um, really exciting NBA franchise at the moment. Anyway, a lot of lot of young talent there, and the people I went to see there was the, the was Suki Hobson, uh, namely, and she's a, a very well known uh, strength conditioning coach from. She's actually British originally, um, but uh, pretty much an honorary Australian, and she's worked at Queensland Academy of Sport. Did some wonderful work there. She's worked in the AFL and um, also had a consulting business, and then. Gone across to the to America to the US to play a trade there as a as the uh, the head of strength and conditioning, um, and she's a little bit of a trailblazer just because she is a, a female in a head type role there and uh, has done wonderfully well, really has. Um, and then the, the another person that was there, the Milwaukee Bucks, another well, he's actually a Kiwi, but. Um, uh, another Australian, honorary Australian, is uh, Michael Davy. He might have an Australian passport, I don't know, but uh, family's originally from New Zealand, so we'll, we'll claim him as a New Zealander. Michael Davy, also a guy from Queensland Academy of Sport, walked a lot with the divers at Queensland Academy of Sport, a lot with swimming. Um, so that was really, really cool, going across to an NBA franchise and being able to spend a day and a half inside the NBA franchise, um, the day-to-day workings of what happens in Look, I grew up in a small town in rural New Zealand, like population 600, and used to, like, when the NBA eventually got shown in, in New Zealand, would hear about and whatnot, and I was into basketball when I was younger. And, like, it's just amazing for me to think that I've come from a small little town to actually go and see the the guys train in an NBA franchise. And, um, 
and see what happens, see the coaches taking through scrimmages and stuff like that. It's, it's just mind-blowing. But that's one of the benefits you get from being a part of part of something like the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. Uh, that's the connection I had uh, with those individuals was, was through the ASCA and uh, – and like the, I reached out to them and said, "Hey, can I can I come out there and um, have a look at the look at what's going on?" And they they very kindly agreed. So, look, really really cool setup and um, similar to Exos and to, similar to the UFC, the the sort of no silo approach was a big theme and everything was open. When you walked in there, where you you're in the gym, you can see what's happening with the physical therapy department and vice versa, and then you can also see right out onto the court and then you new facility that I think had been built in the last couple of years. Um, but the things that I got there just in terms of the specific stuff, um, like the strength and conditioning stuff, um, things that I picked up was a, a quite an interesting basketball warm-up that Michael David took the took the guys through with a ball. Um, there's a lot of shuffling, cutting, crossover-type movements. Um, again, similar to the UFC warm-up, it's, uh, it's specific to, to what the sport is. It also in, incorporates a bit of long-term athlete development um, in there. They also use run rockets a, a fair bit when I was there. And the run rockets are basically, I've used a 1080 before, and it's like a, a winch-type system that can resist some resist some sprinting. We used it for. But um, the run rockets aren't the, aren't the same, the... Um, much simpler, but sometimes simpler is a lot better in, in terms of there's a lot less moving parts and there's less things that are going to break down on you. Uh, and they're basically set up on the side. It's like a like a little winch that people you can add a certain amount of resistance to, and people can run out with them and run back. And uh, if you're interested, check check them out. Just Google run rockets. But um, you use them for a lot of multi-directional work. Um, there was some crossover stepping with it, some shuffling with it, with it being resisted, some side bound. What else do we have there? We had a really cool. If anybody you're familiar with a drop step, um, there was a. They used a really cool variation. Very important for basketball. You've got that type of three sixty degree um, movement that has to happen, and a lot of the movements in basketball aren't necessarily um, going forwards. Uh, there's also a whole heap going sideways and a whole heap going backwards. So a drop step's like a backwards transition movement that you might use and. They used the cool little uh, drop step skip uh, loaded with a sled uh, that they'd pop back with. For it was almost become like a bit of an endurance thing, but um, it was really really neat. And uh, you've got to be able to move in those three sixty degrees for for the basketball. The other things they did that I was interested in, they used a, a little bit of velocity based training, like the gym wear. Um, they would set. Basically, just set weights for the whole squad and then see how fast you could move that weight. Um, so 60 kgs for a bench press, maybe with a band, then you put the gym wear on. How fast can you move that bench press? And you'd have competitions both with yourself and then between the between the boys. Um, in the weight room, there was this massive set of monkey bars. Like, it was, I jumped up and hung off them for a bit and went right across them. But for me to actually get to the actual monkey bars, I... They were like really, really high, and then obviously they're dealing with seven foot guys there, so it's got to be high enough for them to hang fully. So um, it was an effort for me just to jump up and grab hold of them. But this massive, like something you'd see in it is like a CrossFit rig, like a rogue CrossFit rig that goes up, um, elevates, and then there's a sort of terrace of monkey bars, and then comes down. Uh, so an incline, terrace, decline, and then out into another uh, 
a few more sets of monkey bars and the guys, all the guys, the NBA players, these big, tall human beings uh, would go across that and do some pull-ups and some little complexes there. And I think, I think they're really big believers in pull-ups. Um, there's lots of pull-ups that I saw going on. They had some cool stuff with a, uh, like in the gym room, in the, in the weight room, sorry, there was a tumble tramp as well, some gymnastics flooring, a balance beam, and there was a lot of utilization of, of that type of applied gymnastics stuff. If you're interested in the applied gymnastics stuff, we've got a great podcast from Alex Clark. I can't remember what podcast number it is, but that's a really cool thing to listen to. And, um, the, the, both, uh, Suki and, and Mick, you use that applied gymnastics stuff in a really cool way. A lot of pneumatics. Speaking of Exos, going back to Exos, there was a lot of pneumatics there, a lot of Kaiser. Um, I know Suki, actually, one of the one of the things she mentioned to me when she first got there, one of the big things that got her buy-in was she had a lot of success with patella tendinopathy or patella tendon issues by doing isometrics with the boys um, and to, to getting rid of a bit of that pain um, in, in the patella. And that got the trust of the group. And she's she's she does a really good job. She's like a mother walking around there looking after her children, and it's like she's like this real mother figure. Um, and obviously, everyone needs to find their own. The one thing I got from from being there, everyone needs to find their own uh, role or persona within a group or in your in your profession. And and mine might be different to uh, Suki's. I won't be a motherly type, you know what I mean, or probably not even a fatherly type for for me, but. You've got to find your type of persona that works with the group you're dealing with. And I really sense this like this like motherly, almost grandmotherly type care and, and, and all the guys appreciate that and, and you know what I mean? It's that type of relationship and so it was a it was a cool thing to see. But she she got a whole heap of buy-in with this isometric type work and especially doing with the isometrics on the on the pneumatics, like on the Kaiser. Um, I mentioned before there's less impulse, there's less share. So if you've got really big bodies like and really tall bodies, long levers, those things start to become really important considerations. There's a few hip thrusting uh, benches in there. She was a big, they were, both of them were big, uh, big users of that. Some GHRs, reverse hypers, a whole heap of posterior chain uh, emphasis was was in there as well. Um, your, your typical one leg uh, isometric holds in a, in a GHR, that type of thing, straight leg. To, for the posterior chain that, that was in there and I saw maybe some rows combined with it but no really cool and they also did some really cool landmine complexes um, there was uh, just as an example there was a squat to exchange e.g. between left so you squat the press like a thruster um, with one arm where you exchange so you go back and forth then a reverse lunge exchange so reverse lunge back push up exchange the uh, exchange the barbell within the landmine down back into reverse lunge exchange exchange uh, and also a like a rotary squat press so where you're side on to the barbell and you rotate out sort of like a uh, a standing put and if you're familiar with shot put or standing throw where you're side on to the front of the pit and and you twist your hips and, and throw the throw the shot put out so like a rotary squat press what else did we have in there we had uh, I saw one Quite well-known NBA basketballer, his name is Jabari Parker. I saw a bit of he's He was coming back from an anterior cruciate uh, ligament rehabilitation. Might have been, even been a second one, I don't know. Uh, but anyway, I saw some really cool terminal knee extension variations as well while I was there. Um, there was a – we basically if, – if you don't know what it is, Google it and it will come up, TKE uh, or terminal knee extension. 
and you basically put a band around the back of the knee and it's anchored in front of your body and you'll extend the leg to get like uh, distal quadricep activation. It might be VMO, it doesn't matter, but that's the type of activation you're looking for. So there was some stuff where they would go into a single leg deadlift shape, then come back up into the into the terminal knee extension to emphasize this with a with a knee lift, like an acceleration type knee lift. There was a wall drill, like if you've if you've done exercise courses, like an acceleration wall drill type variation with a uh, with a load to lift, but with that band resisting that final knee extension in, in the loaded leg. Um, they also did some stuff uh, emphasizing ankle mobility, so plates under the under the toes, doing a TKE, and, and then this was paired with a whole heap of balance beam work for that proprioception. And while I mentioned the proprioception, another thing they did that was really cool that caught my eye, they did a whole heap of like centrifugal force resistance work, or centrifugal force is what I'm going to call it, maybe they're going to call it something else, but centrifugal force, um, like trunk stability work, where they would have one of those hurricane balls, which is like a medicine ball attached to a rope, and they'll be do, doing figure eights, either walking on the balance beam, um, like so they swing the swing the ball around them in figure eights, and I'm actually doing that while I'm talking to you right now. I'm, I'm making figure eights in my arms as I remember what's going on, but doing figure eights, standing on something like a um, an unstable surface, or walking along a balance beam, or doing little little movements with it. I know there's also Chris Gavilio actually from Queensland Academy of Sport. I'm, we're just on this Queensland Academy of Sport theme now. He's got some interesting variations along those sort of uh, trunk anti-rotation exercises. And uh, look, if you're interested, that's another person to check out there. Um, then alongside that, their high-performance manager is another Australian, Troy Flanagan. It's all Australians actually there. Um, and... It was really interesting. I I spoke to him, and one of the things that that stuck with me from speaking to him, he's a really nice guy, but in his philosophy of how he assembles teams, and it kind of restored my faith in in humanity, this, uh, but his philosophy is let's get the strength and conditioning coach first. That's that's what he's learned to be the most important piece of the puzzle. Then find people that are going to work with that strength and conditioning coach. So for him, he chose Suki. Suki was the the big get for their their team. And then from there, find physios that have worked with Suki. Find um, uh, strength coaches that have worked with Suki. Just so everyone's on the same page. I know they can work together. But find your linchpin first, and then build your team around the linchpin. And I thought that was a a really interesting uh, concept of building a team but also that you prioritise the strength and conditioning coach first. Uh, and in some cases, it might be a little bit different. And, and of course, it's a horses for courses scenario. But in, to his mind, by prioritising the – and it depends on the people's skills too. Like obviously, you have some strength and conditioning coaches that are really good at rehabilitation, some physical therapists that are really good at strength and conditioning. So it depends on the skill set of the person involved. But find that linchpin. And then for Troy, from what I gathered from him, that linchpin involved having the strength as the priority or the strength conditioning as a priority because that was his way of proactively aiding the resiliency of the athlete. So the physiotherapist would have to do less work, basically, um, because you're, you're, you're dealing with the problem before it's even arisen. So that was really interesting, and, and it struck me in a way. And, and he's, um, he's, been, he's another guy you should check out. He's uh, got a PhD in, like, aeronautical engineering from his time with US Ski Snowboard from my understanding and he's been the 
been the uh, US Ski Snowboard High Performance Manager. He's been the manager of the Victorian Institute of Sport. So really, really smart guy. And uh, and he, he runs, he's the High Performance Manager there or the equivalent title for there for the Milwaukee Bucks. One really cool thing about uh, being at the Milwaukee Bucks actually was similar to when I was with Exos and I had Jay, Josh Acock uh, hanging out with me. Uh, there was another guy from Australia, actually, one of the, a guy that had worked with Suki at Geelong, and his name was Jared Wade, and he now works with, at South Sydney Rabbitohs. Uh, he's a real, real expert at GPS, and uh, he'd been out with the um, with the Milwaukee Bucks in years prior to help them set up their set up the GPS and their monitoring that sort of thing. And this was the second time back out there, but it was really good having him there, um, just because when I was there, similar to Josh, the the guys didn't have to worry about me. We could we could hang out and we could compare notes, like we'd watch things being done and then I'd ask him about some things and he would ask me about some things. And, and it was really, really good. He did do well with it. He actually did gave a little presentation to the Milwaukee staff um, and it was all about how you manage like a return to play process and who's in charge of what systems and what stages and when there's handover. And so there's really clear defined roles in a return to play process where you might have a number of a number of different stages set up in your return to play. It might be like uh, initial recovery, uh, return to training, training to compete, and then return to competition. Um, just as an example, I've pulled off my head right now. It's not the ones that Jared presented on, but it's just something that I've pulled out of my head right now. Uh, and then you define what it, what's the objective to make it to each stage or to, to progress to the next stage. And then once you've defined those objectives in collaboration with everyone – then you go, okay, well, who's going to be the number one manager for this stage for this person? Who's going to be the assistant? Um, are there any other people involved? And then does that change as it evolves? E.g., it might start with the physiotherapist and the say, so we've got a three-stage process. The first stage, physiotherapist is, is the guy, uh, and then you've got your rehab coach, which might be a strength and conditioning guy or a strength and conditioning guy who's going to assist the, assist the physiotherapist. Then phase two, it might be the um, strength conditioning coach that's the number one guy that manages it all, and you've got the physiotherapist as the number two guy, and a sports scientist who's going to start tracking external load or GPS or something like that as the number three guy, uh, just to make sure that they've got their, say, acute to chronic workload ratios up, whatever, their chronic load's high enough for them to um, start to get back into training with the team. And then you might go to a third stage, and the sports scientist might be the number one guy. And the physio might be the number two guy and the strength conditioning staff might be the number three guy. And the sports scientist is the, might be in this stage when the helps decide and consultation with the physiotherapist and the, and the, uh, and the strength and conditioning coach when the athlete can actually return to play, um, return to competition. So really, really cool concept. And, um, like it's, it's pretty typical of like a management theory. You know what I mean? You've got to have somebody managing it, um, and it, those roles might change as the process evolves with an athlete, and uh, it, it's, it doesn't make sense to have one person in, in charge the whole time. And or maybe it, maybe it does in the particular situation. But I really like Jared's thinking on this, and and how this was quite a nice way of managing that process and and making sure everyone was involved. And and uh, when things were important, that person was highlighted, and when things weren't so important, that person wasn't wasn't highlighted. So that was it from Milwaukee, and, and look, it was, a, it was a really exciting time to be there. The, the, uh, the NBA team had a lot of excitement about it. It was uh, 
Jason Kidd was actually still coaching at the time. He was still the head coach at the time. He, I, he got let go midway through the season. But um, there was uh, some so a lot of excitement about how well the team was going to do, and they ended up doing pretty well despite the mid-season coaching change. Um, everybody there was really friendly. I spoke to a lot of the coaches, and I got introduced to a lot of the coaches, and everyone was uh, a lot of the players were friendly as well. So there's a really good culture around there, and um, I had to go off to to Suki and Michael for, for the jobs really cool they do, but the climate there is definitely not the kindest, so they're doing really well over there and, and the work they're doing is exceptional. I think just to sum up from what I learned on this US study would be a really nice way to finish this podcast off. Definitely in, in terms of the management things I saw there, I guess the, the management theories I saw there, um, look, you, you want to remove the silos between people. It wants to be a collaborative workspace and there's probably also more enjoyment, engagement in those type of workspaces. And as, as I mentioned with the UFC, it doesn't necessarily need to be just within the performance division or between the performance and the physio uh, parts of things that can also be organization wide um, the the stuff like assembling that high performance team from Milwaukee find your linchpin and then work around that and then also managing that that process or whatever whatever process you need to do and managing the roles of the people involved and I gave the example with Jared Wade from a rehabilitation uh, process but it could be any type of process and those responsibilities it doesn't need to be set in stone for the duration of that process, those things can be fluid and can change and can move on out depending on a person's skill set or the the situation that you've got there. Um, look, in terms of what I saw in there and the training specific things, the strength and conditioning, look, all three of the places I went to uh, at least had a understanding and, and prioritised that type of wattage model, you know what I mean? There was velocity-based training measures and everywhere I went. Um, two out of the three we're big believers in Kaiser and pneumatics and look I'm, I'm a massive believer in Kaiser myself and pneumatics from working in track and field and the, the sort of ca- uh, crossover or transfer I, I feel we got from working with Kaiser was probably higher than what we would have got working with Mass. Um, now I do have to say a big thank you to everyone involved and for letting me come out and spend some time with them it was, it was a great experience for me. I've probably done a really poor job of of uh, representing what they do in this podcast and that obviously I was only there for one day and I've probably butchered and how I've explained uh, what they've done and, and but look that they're all doing a really good job and, and I have to say the biggest thanks uh, go out to them for letting me coming in there and letting me share this information with you all so that's it I'm going to sign off for now and I really hope you enjoyed it as always um, if you're not a member of the Australian Strength and Conditioning I just went through a whole heap of stuff that ways you can get funding by being a member from the Australian Strength Conditioning Association from the ASCA to get funding if you want to be a, go further, get some professional development. There's some really cool things out there. And uh, like I said, put in an application. The worst thing that will happen is is they'll say no. Um, but you can always try again and try again. And, and who knows, eventually one day you might be getting a conference paid for or something along those lines or getting a conference uh, uh, attendance assisted with. So, look, that's it from me. I really hope you enjoyed it, like I said. And... As always, love to have you back on here. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and would love to have any feedback you've got.